0: This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating.
3: There are people who are mosquito magnets, uh, and there's people like you, lucky people like you, that uh, you're either actively repellent to them or they ignore you. I think you're a lovely person, Alan, but, but, but you are repellent to mosquitoes. <laughs> <laughs> there was this funny hierarchy in the human race where it's a whole range from people who are actively repellent, who are very rarely bitten, and then people who are really bothered by them. You could be the most attractive person at a particular picnic and be the one attacked by the mosquitoes, but then maybe the next week you play tennis with someone who is much more attractive than you are, and then you will feel like the person who's being ignored. So a really fascinating scientific problem.
0: That's Leslie Bosshold, whose lab at Rockefeller University in normal times is swarming with mosquitoes. She and her team are employing not only a room-sized machine to peer into mosquito brains, but also using pantyhose, yes, pantyhose, to solve the puzzle of why mosquitoes find us so desirable. The goal is to explore ways to make us all less tasty, and so to help protect us from humankind's most deadly predator. This is so great to be talking to you today because while your science is fascinating, it's also fascinating science that everybody encounters at some point in their life, the subject of your science, especially the part where mosquitoes bite us. In the course of your research, how many times have you been bitten?
3: Thousands of times. Thousands And it's exactly why I switched to the mosquito, because I got tired of people seeming bored about what I used to work on. So everybody understands why it's important to study the mosquito. Everyone has been bitten. So we love it. We love our new experimental animal.
0: What did you work on before? You was fruit flies before, wasn't it?
3: Yeah, it was very esoteric. So how little Drosophila larvae crawl on plates toward... Synthetic odor is very boring, but by the time I would get two minutes in, people would be rushing to get a, ne- a drink at the bar to get away from me. So.
0: <laughs> the fact is we are bitten, but I, n- I don't know if we all realize how dangerous mosquitoes are to humanity. You've called them the deadliest animal in the world, right?
3: Yes, the, the Gates Foundation, which which has been generous funders of our science, put together this really beautiful infographic uh, showing which are the deadliest animals. How how many humans are killed by sharks or rabid dogs, or rhinoceroses or mosquitoes? And mosquitoes top the list handily. So so mosquitoes are the biggest killers of humans because they transmit things like malaria, and viruses like Zika, dengue, yellow fever, and chikungunya. So they're they're big killers. And uh, we have a luxury in the United States where it's kind of abstract for us. You know, mosquitoes are annoying, uh, but we don't suffer uh, the kind of morbidity and mortality that, that people in, in, the, in the tropical world do.
0: I get the impression from just being alive that some of us are more attractive to mosquitoes than others. For instance, I, um, when I'm gathering with people, in the Virgin Islands sometimes when I've been on vacation. Everybody's been complaining and I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I, I'm left alone. <laughs> is that my imagination or are some of us uh, not attractive?
3: It is not your imagination. So it's something that every citizen scientist notices and it's been documented in my lab and many other labs. So there are people who are mosquito magnets uh, and there's people like you, lucky people like you, that uh, you're either actively repellent to them or they ignore you. <laughs> I think you're a lovely person, Alan, but 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 you are repellent to mosquitoes. <laughs> uh, and it's funny; it's it's always very contingent. You you don't know if you're attractive or unattractive depending on the the picnic group that you are. You could be, you could be the most attractive person at a particular picnic, and be the one attacked by the mosquitoes. But then maybe the next week. You play tennis with someone who is much more attractive than you are, and then you will feel like the person who's being ignored. So there is this funny hierarchy in the human race where it's a whole range from people who are actively repellent, who are very rarely bitten, and then people who are really bothered by them. A really fascinating scientific problem.
0: I loved the idea that this person told you that his or her mom was attractive and they would welcome her to their outdoor gatherings so she'd attract all the mosquitoes and keep, keep them away from everybody else.
3: Absolutely. The most popular person at the picnic. It could be, you know, in the age of the pandemic, maybe it's a new employment category where you're, you're invited to the picnics and, uh, and you get bitten. So what That's is it? unethical. But.
0: Yeah. What, <laughs> what, what, is, what is it that makes us so attractive? Is it, is it generally one thing or is it a range of things?
3: What it is, is the smells that you give off. So that's that's the one thing that's a unique signature of, of each of us. So we all generically give off body heat and heat. Mosquitoes really like warm objects. We all breathe carbon dioxide and mosquitoes are really intensely activated. They get really crazy when they smell carbon dioxide. But, but what differentiates us is the smells that we give off from our skin uh, that we often aren't aware of so even you know if you if you sniff your wrist uh you don't really smell anything but if you give a mosquito just a little bit of a whiff of of the skin of your wrist they they can be extremely attracted to it so that that's what differentiates the mosquito magnets from the mosquito repellent
0: what do we think produces those smells is it what we eat
3: yeah so what we and others have found is there's, it's this fascinating ecosystem on the skin. So we're covered with bacteria. The, the microbiome is in our gut, of course, but it's also uh, our entire body surface is covered with bacteria that have this interaction with the skin. And the bacteria feed on us, on the the sebum and the fat and the nutrients that are on the surface of the skin. And each of us has a slightly different garden of. Um, mm-hmm. Of bacteria, of course, a, un- a unique flora uh, fauna on our skin, and 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 that that's what causes the unique scent. It is, of course, modulated by what we eat. So you know, if you eat garlic, you smell garlicky. There 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 is this folklore that vitamin B, bananas, and garlic will influence mosquito attraction. There isn't a lot of science behind that. Um, but it's very much in people's minds that everybody tells me, you don't need to work on this anymore. We have figured it out. <laughs> we, we've we got this, Leslie. You can pack it up. But we are busily working on trying to understand what the skin is producing, what kinds of molecules uh, the skin is producing. And um, a scientist in my laboratory, Ellen Deobaldia, has collected a range of people who are super magnets for mosquitoes and then super repellents, and she's everybody wears pantyhose so we come into the lab and people are wearing pantyhose on their arms <laughs> um, that she then has a team of people that cut the pantyhose into little squares and and then offers that to the mosquitoes and you can then also offer that up to a machine a gas chromatogram a mass spectrometer that will sniff the molecules on the nylons and and try to tell us what are the mosquito magnets producing that that makes them so irresistible and you know I wish I had the answer for you today because everybody asks me all my family members say you've been doing this for 10 years where is our answer where is our mosquito repellent uh, and we don't have the answer yet but um, I feel like we're making good progress
0: apparently we're bitten only by female mosquitoes well, wh- why is that what's going on there
3: so most people are surprised when they learn that, and you're absolutely right. Only females bite, and only females drink our blood. And what's going on there is that the blood is used to make eggs. So uh, the mosquitoes that spread these diseases are not able to make eggs, to reproduce, to make the next generation without the protein from blood. is very sexually dimorphic, and we're fascinated by that, that the – it's. It's the same species, but the male and the female are so different. They, they smell the world differently, and they feed on different things.
0: And do they have a predilection for humans? I mean, is the vast majority of their biting done on humans? Or, or are they equally interested in other animals?
3: Depends on the species. So the, the ones that are in the news that are killing people, they specialize on humans. So the malaria mosquitoes and the mosquitoes we study, Aedes aegypti, they prefer humans over any other animal. So even if you take a human that is like you, if I give my mosquitoes a choice of you and any animal, they will always choose you. So we've taken the scent of dogs and guinea pigs and rats and cows, and um, they always prefer humans. And so there's a lot of thinking that, that the mosquitoes have evolved to live among humans. Um, Because they can live really successfully among us. We always have water lying around so they can breed. And there's a lot of us. So we normally live in these large, concentrated dwellings. And so we are a buffet that's available to them, Mm -hmm. a smorgasbord available to them 365 days a year. There are other mosquitoes that don't care for people, but, but the ones that are dangerous specialize on us.
0: When we use a mosquito repellent, how does it work?
3: Uh, a question for the ages, There are there's ongoing screaming and yelling fights about how, how they work, believe it or not. So the, the major insect repellent is called DEET. This, this is this uh, molecule discovered uh, during the Second World War that's very protective. It works really well. And uh, there's evidence out there that it confuses the insect sense of smell. This is our idea. Other people think it smells bad to insects. Uh, If a mosquito was able to fly through that fog of the insect repellent and land on the skin, within about 60 milliseconds, uh, she will realize that she has just landed on something really horrible and she'll freak out and fly away. So uh, the repellent has this really interesting dual mode of action. So it seems to act in the air to prevent the mosquito from flying toward you in the first place. And if that mode of action fails and she actually ends up on your skin, she will never bite you because there's such a repellent effect of of her touching the, the repellent um, on your skin.
0: The ability of mosquitoes to evolve is very interesting, and I wonder if they're going to keep evolving out of our reach as we develop ways to combat them. I'm thinking of what I heard you say in a talk where you were talking about, Sleeping under a net works in some places and some places it doesn't, and the reason seems to be evolution.
3: Absolutely, these are animals with a really short life cycle, which means that you can very rapidly have evolution putting selection pressure on a population. So, I found that to be such a terrifying result that bed nets had an enormous impact. The Gates Foundation and other nonprofits put in hundreds of millions of dollars. And started saving lives. So malaria dropped from reliably about a million people a year to half a million people a year, in large part through bed mm-hmm. nets. And, uh, you know, there's there's always genetic variation in populations. So there were mosquitoes that were night owls or ones that really liked hanging out during the day. And you then rapidly select for those females that will bite during the day. and um, And then those prosper and reproduce. And, and the ones that are really devoted to blood feeding at night kept encountering that bed net, weren't able to get a blood meal, they just disappeared. So they were deleted. And the only survivors then are the ones that just naturally enjoyed mooching around during the day and blood feeding. So, And that, that happened within a few years. You see the same thing with insecticides. So people have been working continuously on new ideas about how to kill insects and there's always that 0.1% of mosquito that doesn't care about your new fancy molecule. And the 99.99% die, and that 0.1% is impervious and then takes over. So.
0: Sounds like you have job security forever.
3: <laughs> we love what we do. I mean, I would love it. I would love it if, uh, if science would put us out of business. But yeah, the mosquito, again, because she needs that blood. If she doesn't get that blood, it's over for her. So, uh, you know, I think it's an incredibly important force of evolution that that they're going to beat us because they need our blood.
0: You've been using CRISPR to edit the genes of mosquitoes?
3: Yes. So we were, I'm proud that my team was the first to use CRISPR to genetically modify our species of insect. And that's been really powerful so, we so how can, does that
0: work? What do you, in what way do you modify it and what do you get out of a modification?
3: Operationally, you, you make this magic cocktail of, of CRISPR and you inject it into eggs. So you inject it into mosquito eggs and then they grow up and become mosquitoes where we have done something. So we have a paper that was just went out last week where we made a transgender mosquito. We, we took away a single gene called fruitless and... What happens in those animals, which is the most amazing thing that I have seen in a decade, is that now the male mosquitoes become really interested in humans.
0: now why why would you do that? What would you learn from that kind of experiment?
3: Good, good question. So you know, the first and most important thing we do it because it's cool because, because... <laughs> <laughs> because you can. <laughs> because we can, because it's there. It's like, why ask? Why, why do mountain climbers climb mountains? Because it's cool and because they're there, and you know, because it tells us something about how how do you build a brain that hunts humans? What, why don't males hunt humans? What's what's wrong with the males? You know what? How how did they how did they develop differently? Where they just don't care about humans, and so this single gene manipulation uncovers this whole world where we realize males can do it. They look like males. They, they act like males otherwise, but they've, but there's been this little switch that's been turned in their brains where, where they now like humans. So it does begin to tell us something about how you build a dangerous female mosquito that will bite people and spread disease.
0: So is it possible to use that knowledge that you gained on the male to knock out a gene in the female that makes her do the same thing
3: possibly and it's funny because we we had a big vibrant conversation on twitter about this paper and a lot of people said oh great you know the you know you could have done the opposite experiment of making females not be interested in humans that that were such evil scientists that we you know made made male mosquitoes try to hunt people so yes i agree that's that in an ideal world, you would, you would try to figure out how to stop the females from being interested in humans. That's, that's a main goal of, of the laboratory, is to, is to take the appetite of the female away.
0: So is that on the schedule, or is there something holding that back?
3: You know, it is on the schedule. We published a paper two years ago where we discovered that a variation of a human diet drug if you feed this variation of a human diet drug to mosquitoes, uh, she will lose her appetite for people. <laughs> so that, that's something to me that's immediately actionable. And, and we're working with Takeda Pharmaceuticals to, to develop this idea into something that we could actually feed to mosquitoes in the field. And I love this idea because we already talked about evolution and the and the incredible pressure for those females to evade the tricks that we are <laughs> playing on mosquitoes. And the diet drug is kind of a gentle tool. Every female that, that drinks our diet drug will lose her appetite for three or four days. And so during that three or four day period, she won't bite people. And so that interrupts the chain of transmission, but we don't kill her. So the drug wears off and then she will go back to bite people. But so the important thing is that if enough mosquitoes take a break from biting, that we are actually able to have an impact on disease transmission, but it's not such a heavy intervention that we end up selecting for females that are resistant to the diet drugs. That's that's how I'm trying to put all those pieces together that I think some of the ideas out there are using a really, really heavy hammer approach that the mosquitoes will evade. 100% they'll evade all these fancy technologies because there's always gonna be one or two mosquitoes that are resistant. So our, our diet drug, we, we are confident that, uh, that it a, has a gentle enough touch. We're not killing them. We're not turning off the appetite forever that we're, we will have an impact.
0: So three or four days, is that an important um, amount of time in the life of a mosquito?
3: Well, three or four days is, is as good as our drug is so far. I mean, maybe we'll get lucky with Takeda and we'll find a drug that does seven or eight days. Seven or eight days will be useful because because then you would begin to outrun the cycle of transmissions.
0: When we come back, I talk with Leslie Voss Hall about how she can peer into the brains of mosquitoes, her brief but memorable turn as a movie actor, and why she so enjoys flouting the tired old stereotypes of women scientists. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience And also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Kavli Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid... You can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on our virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show. Bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer Graham Chet and I put the shows together. Plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free. But you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Aldis Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid.
1: Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at discounttire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.
2: Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses.
1: Call me picky, but I just can't
2: find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on.
0: and how neuroscience allows her to see what's going on in a mosquito's brain. When I think of neuroscience, I think of putting a probe in a brain or taking pictures of a brain, analyzing the process in ways like that. But you work on the brains of these tiny animals in a completely different way. How do you do it?
3: You're right that mosquitoes have brains. And first of all, so many people don't realize that insects have brains. So thank you for getting the word out that that mosquitoes do have brains. um, Well,
0: that's interesting. They think they're too small to have brains?
3: My mother is always amazed when I tell her that that mosquitoes have brains. So, yeah. So mosquitoes are incredibly smart and... So we are able to do neuroscience by miniaturizing some of the technology that is used to to image the human brain or or a rodent brain uh, because mosquito brain is much tinier. So what we have done, what what Meg Younger, a scientist in the lab, has done is we use light, uh, which penetrates the brain to be able to watch neurons become activated. So these are these next level Proteins that that sense calcium and calcium increases are a proxy for the brain getting excited. So she's been able to see the mosquito brain get excited about carbon dioxide, which they sniff and get excited about. She's been able to see the mosquito brain get excited about human body odors. So we, we get around the small size by by using next generation genetic tools, which have made it really exciting.
0: So wait, you got to help me with this. When she sees it, how does she see the the excitation?
3: Ah, okay. I left something out. I left out a half a million dollar machine.
0: (laughs) (laughs) They're not easy to come by. You can't hard to leave them out. So, what? What? How does a machine help her see the brain?
3: So this is something called a two-photon microscope. So you, you put the, the tiny mosquito underneath a very powerful lens, um, and then the two-photon microscope um, beams uh, photons into the brain, uh, which will then, as that, that protein gets excited, if, if the mosquito smells carbon dioxide, calcium floods into the cell, and the protein senses that the calcium has flooded into the cell, and then it will emit green light. So the neuron will sparkle, mm. and the two photon microscope will then detect that, which is cool. I mean, the room we it, it, this thing fills up an entire room. We're we're in New York City, where an entire room is not so easy to come by. Um, so it's like a whole Star Wars setup with the lasers, and then and then at the center of it is this tiny, teeny, tiny brain. <clears throat> Um, So it's kind of a remarkable thing that that the tools needed to see into a tiny brain are orders of magnitude larger than the brain.
0: You know, on our show, we interview scientists, actors, a whole range of people. In you, we get two for one. (laughs) You acted in the movie. Tell me about that.
3: Yes, I was there. I actually am an actor in a feature film um, called *The Fly Room*, uh, which is a fascinating film that uh, described in in a you know it it really is a feature film. It's a it's a beautiful film that describes the birth of genetics in the twentieth century using Drosophila, the the very famous fly that that founded uh, modern organismal genetics. And so, um, it I I play a character. that uh, named Edith Wallace, who was sort of behind the scenes. Her, her job was to sketch. She made these beautiful pen and ink drawings of all of the mutant flies that were generated by this research group working at Columbia in the early 20th century. Well, she was mostly forgotten to science, so I think that uh, what, what the movie did that was interesting is remind people that there was a woman scientist, a scientific illustrator, that was really at the heart of documenting what the geneticists were doing. What made it poignant is that she was a lone woman surrounded by all these brash, actually obnoxious, offensive men who uh you know made it a sort of a hostile workplace for her. So I it was a painful role for me to play because I I couldn't say what I actually thought about them. But I love being on a film set to see actually the process of actually producing a work of art with film. It's it's, it's an unbelievable amount of work, and so I, I, I really enjoyed looking behind the curtain to see how that actually works.
0: How close do you think scientific work and the doing of art are? Some scientists see a real connection, some don't. Where Where, where are you on that?
3: I see the connection. I think it's completely false narrative to say that, oh, science is analytical and, you know, objective and bloodless and... Um, and art is creative and loose and visionary. Um, the best scientists really have all the qualities of artists. We, we have to pull ideas out of the air. We have to be creative. We have to take risks. Uh, so I think that the, the paths are very, very similar. Um, and, and we don't have bosses really. So we, you know, artists can really pursue their creative vision. Scientists, we have the luxury of pursuing our creative vision. So I think they're very close together.
0: It's interesting that when you do art, whether it's a play or, or a book, a novel, a movie, you have to be dealing with something that's meaningful. It's hard, it's hard to be artistic without some sense of meaning attached to it. And it seems to me that when you do research, the version of that that's similar is the question you choose to explore. How do you pick a question to work on? Because you've got to raise funding for it. You've got to get your lab people interested in it. You, you, how do you do that? How do you pick a subject to work on?
3: This, this is the key thing to get right if you're a scientist, because the problem is any you can study anything. Every experiment can be done. This is my mantra. You know, you can do it, but should you do it? So we should only do experiments that, that are likely to be meaningful where the question is worth asking. So this is why about a decade ago, I I switched the research program over to the mosquito because it was clear that they could use a few more people to pitch in to understand everything that we've been discussing. It was a field that didn't have a lot of people looking at it from the point of view of neurobiology that ended up being very fundable. So the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation were very interested in looking at the behavior of the female mosquito. And it has been it, it sells itself, you know, This the research program. You don't have to convince people that mosquitoes are important. Um, even so, we have to constantly intervene and ask ourselves, you can do this experiment, but should you? You know, we, we always want to be doing the harder experiment, not the easy experiment. And, and just like artists have to throw away sketches and and give up on things and, and, uh, and suffer for their art. We suffer for our science a lot. A, a lot of things don't work. A lot of ideas that we think are good ideas are stupid ideas uh, that we have to pivot and do something else. So um, again, the parallels between science and art, everywhere you look, they, they are present.
0: How did you get into the whole field of biology? I I I seem to remember you started as a dishwasher in a lab. How did you get from there to this? And how did you get there in the first place? Uh,
3: so I got there through nepotism, I just want to admit <laughs> it. So
0: Through <laughs> so nepotism you became a dish. Well it wasn't just washing dishes, you were washing washing Lab instruments, right? flasks and things.
3: That's right, so I my, my uncle Philip Dunham uh, ran a summer laboratory in uh, on Cape Cod in Woods Hole at the Marine Biological Laboratory and and they needed someone to be sort of entry level picking up packages and cleaning glassware and uh, and I did that and then I got bored and then they saw that I was curious and uh, motivated and pushy. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they let me uh, start doing experiments, and I loved it. So I thought, this is absolutely the life for me. So I, I was 16 and had this incredible, incredible opportunity to be able to see, again, peer behind the curtain of what is science. And so I've tried to help all of the young people who don't have an uncle who's in the business and so normally, on normal summers, the lab is full of high school students. So this was a really sad summer because nobody was in the lab. But we normally have about 10, 10 high school students who are getting that first chance to do science.
0: I'm interested in the notion of stereotypes and how they hold us back in a lot of ways. And you, I get the impression from things I've seen you say that you've been annoyed a little bit at the stereotype that a woman doesn't look like a scientist unless she's in a white lab coat and has other symbols of seriousness about her.
3: Absolutely. This has been my my lifelong passion is to to be um, provocative and be my own person and try to encourage people to be, you know, tend to not get pushed into these categories, and it, it is fairly infuriating, and, and different generations of women have dealt with this in different ways. In the early 20th century, women were just shut out. They weren't allowed to, to work in science, and then later generations had to make this choice between getting married and having children or being scientists. You know, if they if they got married, they were pushed out of the lab, so um, I did whatever I can to be outrageous, dye my hair, wear crazy clothes, wear high heels... Um, and just show that there's that you don't need to be a dude mm. to be a scientist you don't need to be drab and dour and boring and um that's been a winning strategy for me, and I hope that it's encouraged other people to be outrageous because you know I you know being boring and dour can only get you so far in life
0: <laughs> Wait, what can you can you remember for me instances where Your objective to be yourself, to dress the way you wanted to, where it got a reaction that was really not
3: helpful. When I was in graduate school, people, some professors said, you are not cut out to be a scientist. You should not be a scientist. You care about fashion too much. Mm. It's not going to work, Leslie. It's just not going to work. And I would just say, you know what? Shut up.
0: (laughs) That's a great argument. That's right. <laughs> so how has it worked for you? How has it been a successful strategy?
3: I think it's been a successful strategy because I see other people following my lead. You know, I think that you you always look to people who are older than you to figure out how should you behave. What's what's an acceptable range of behaviors? Where, where you know, what what does a scientist look like? So I'm, I'm very encouraged that that younger people are themselves. That people in my lab are people have orange hair. People wear what they want. Um, I'm telling you, in the 70s and 80s, the the uniform was Birkenstocks, fleece, dirty T-shirts from scientific vendors, and cargo shorts. And and the women would fall in line sometimes with that uniform. And I just wasn't having it. So, um, I mean, it sounds like it's trivial to talk about fashion, but it does matter because it's an expression of your personality. And it's important for scientists not to fit in because conformity is really bad for science. So you, you want people who are nonconformists who are going to push um, to asking the new questions. So I think, I think it kind of starts with personal expressions, fashion, hair color, as trivial as that is, because it's, it, it will remind you that you're an individual and give you the courage to, uh, to do unconventional science.
0: And you bring up how it seems to work With uh, taking on postdocs, people who are working with you in the lab, you—you sounds like you have an eye toward really letting them be their individual selves. Does that extend even beyond how they how they dress or what color their hair is, what the ideas they come up with, the way you collaborate? How does it work?
3: Yeah. Absolutely. So I think the the a laboratory is only as successful as the brilliant people who work in it, the individual, the creativity, and again, by having a non-conformist laboratory, this means that i'm I'm not really an authority figure. you You need people to say that is a really stupid idea, Leslie, or you didn't read this paper, you're not prepared. I, I need my people to be provocative and original. and we're we're a very diverse and in, inclusive workplace, so we, we're, we're international, multi-ethnic, um, LGBT, so people can be their authentic selves. And um, and I think that that is the secret of the success of a laboratory, that, that it's not a top-down um, situation. I, I could hire many talented technicians, people who are very skilled at the bench, who would carry out what I tell them to do, and we would quickly become mired in mediocrity because I'm only one person. I, I need the 20 people in the laboratory and their ideas to, to push the enterprise forward. But that is really key. I think if you have a personality cult of a, of a, a leader who, who is invincible, who doesn't listen, just look at our country, mm. how, how bad it is to have, to have poor leadership. So. And
0: not listening at every level.
3: <laughs> yes.
0: Before we go, we always end with seven quick questions. You're shaking your head. You know about these questions?
3: I, I'm very nervous about it. Let's see.
0: Okay. You should, no, need, no need to be nervous because any, any, any answer, as long as it's authentic, is going to be a good one. <laughs> First question What do you wish you really understood?
3: Why are some humans more attractive to mosquitoes than others?
0: See, I want to know why some humans are more attractive to each other.
3: <laughs> <laughs> That's another question for the ages.
0: Next question: How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong?
3: You have to make it personal, so you have to you have to for COVID. You have to you have to say, "Okay, let me break it down for you. This could affect you personally. This is this is how wearing a mask will affect you personally." So that you're not lecturing them, you you make it really real for them as an individual.
0: What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you?
3: I gave a seminar for the members of the public at Berkeley. And and a woman came up to me afterward obsessed with this idea that that her toilet is covered with microbiome of poop bacteria. And wasn't I upset about this? And won't my laboratory study poop bacteria that emerge when you flush toilets?
0: (laughs) After you talked about mosquitoes for an hour.
3: It was a bit of a non-sequitur, yes.
0: (laughs) How do you stop a compulsive talker
3: uh, such an annoying problem. I, I make use of their visual cortex. People pay attention to motion. So I'll wave my hands. I'll do something to distract them and hope that it interrupts their train of thought. Well, that's
0: interesting. Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table when it was possible to do that and somebody next to you is someone you didn't know. How do you start up a real conversation with that person?
3: I uh, usually will start with food, so we'll, we'll use the food as a starting point and try to understand, like what's what's your favorite pasta or what do you like to cook, some sort of an opener that's that's related to what's what's in front of them. This, you know, hu- humans human socialization is so challenging, and we are all gonna forget how to do it. By the yeah. way, in in twenty twenty three we won't we will not know how to start conversations. Well, well let, let's worried. see if
0: you've lost it yet. Rigatoni. Now, what do you what do you uh. do next? <laughs>
3: No, I hate rigatoni. Oh, go. No, that's the end of the car. I'm turning to the person on the
0: other side.
3: Yeah. <laughs> How could you hate
0: rigatoni? It sounds like a left-right proposition. Yeah. What gives you confidence?
3: Ah, uh, what gives me confidence? I, I, use, I use my clothing as, as sort of an armor against the world, so, and I know that that will make people smile. So right now I'm wearing a sweater with a giant cat on it where my arms uh, give the impression that my arms are the cat's arms. So, so just go, going out the door with crazy clothes gives me confidence.
0: That's really interesting. I never heard an answer like that. Last question. What book changed your life?
3: I have a genre of books, which is Cold War, gloom and doom literature. So 1984, all of the great Solzhenitsyn books, um, because they made me realize when I was eight years old that, um, you know, that you should always hope for the best but plan for the worst. Mm. That that arbitrary repression, cruelty, loss of free will is something to pay attention to and, um, and um, to try to fight against it. These ideas have never been more true than in 2020 when all all of these terrible things are happening. So I love those books because they taught me sort of the worst of humanity.
0: Well, talking to you has been some of the best. And I've really, (laughs) I've really had a great time. Thank you very much for this really fun conversation.
3: My pleasure. It's, it's, you're a a hero of mine and I love everything you do to support science and science communication. You're
0: so kind. Thank you. Thanks so much, Leslie.
3: My privilege.
0: been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Leslie Boss Hall is head of the Laboratory of Neurogenetics and Behavior and director of the Kavli Neural Systems Institute, both at Rockefeller University. Regular listeners to Clear and Vivid may remember that she and a fellow researcher whose work she talked about, Ellen DeObaldia, were featured in our Women in Science special last October. You can find out more about Leslie's work at Rockefeller.edu and check her Twitter handle, at polyp1. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, we kick off the 10th season of Clear and Vivid with a very special episode, an hour-long conversation with the extraordinary Anthony Fauci. We spoke last month at a live-streamed event hosted by Smithsonian Associates. It was the evening of a typical day for Tony Fauci, an appearance in the morning before a Senate committee that not typically turned a little testy and an afternoon with the Coronavirus Task Force at the White House. And then our talk. Here's a moment from that talk. So the wearing of masks should be, you take care of me and I take care of you, and not, I'm in a vacuum, I'm going to do what I want to do. We've got to have that societal responsibility because we're all in this together, Alan. This is not something that... 25 or 30 percent of the people can do what they want to do and think they're not negatively impacting the rest of society. You are. You may not realize you are, but you are. Dr. Anthony Fauci, battling both a deadly pandemic and some willful ignorance. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalder.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.